Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, St. Luke's Episcopal Church Sunday Forum. I'm thrilled to have as a return guest to this forum, uh, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, the President Emerita of Spelman College and the author of the best-selling now 20-year-old volume of uh, called uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? So um, she is a national resource. And uh, so many of us are coming to Dr. Tatum to say, we need your insights. What's going on? Help us to be more effective. And that actually is the nature of our conversation today. So uh, before we get into it, uh, welcome Dr. Tatum and thank you very much for coming back. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, St. Luke's really appreciates you and uh, I, I'll never forget that full room when we could gather uh, during your first get, uh, visit. And then subsequently, uh, all sorts of people are using your texts as, and, and videos uh, as resources. So we'll get into that. Um, but the first question is a general one, uh, Dr. Tatum. How's it been going for you? I know that you've been very, very busy. I, I had to get in line to get this time with you. And a lot of people are beating on your door. So I would love to know, number one, generally, how it's been going and what your analysis, what are your reflections about whether or not we are in an inflection point in American history. What do you, what's going on? What do you think? Sure. Well, it has been um, since the murder of George Floyd. Uh, certainly, I have gotten lots of calls, and I spend most of my days talking to people over Zoom or on the phone or responding to email questions that journalists are sending my way. And, um, and, and I'm happy to do that because, you know, I, I want to see progress made. I do think that um, we are potentially at an inflection point. It remains to be seen whether we will actually um, realize the fruits of this moment. I, you know, one of the questions I've been asked is like, why now? Like why out of all the incidents that have occurred that this one sparked so much response? particularly within white communities. And I think it has everything to do with eight minutes and 46 seconds of video that was clear and undeniable. Um, you know, sometimes we see these body cam videos and you can question, you know, was that officer being threatened or not? Um, but this was clear and unavoidable. There, no, you know, no excuses can be made and it's just, uh, such a shocking and horrifying example of dehumanization followed, of course, following on the heels of here in Georgia, the Ahmaud Arbery case in um, Brunswick and, you know, the shooting of Breonna Taylor as she slept in her own home. Um, all of those things culminating and people being at home because of COVID-19 and having lots of opportunity to see these images over and over again on their TV screens or laptops or you know on the internet, I think really forced people to look at some things that maybe otherwise they would look away from. That's a that's a really important thought. I, I just hadn't had it. The cumulative effect and all of us being at home and the undeniability. I I. I I have to confess, I have not been able to watch all eight minutes and 36 seconds. It's just, and, and I don't know whether I should do that or not. Nevertheless, I, I feel it and um, very important. So thanks for that. Um, then let me go ahead and, and put the structure out here for us about where I want to go. Um, so, as so many of us are, uh, want to, to listen to Brian Stevenson, and a, a New Yorker interview two weeks ago was very revelatory for me. It is awfully 
um, appropriately textured and complicated. And the biggest, I think, takeaway for me was his talking about how important, how intrinsically important protests are. And I know that as a person who's been protesting since 1968, right after Dr. King's assassination. Um, and then he goes on to say, and the hard work is beneath the protesting. And he mentions two or three things, but that's where I want to spend my energy. I, I, I'm, you know, if, if I were not awfully vulnerable um, because of my age and some health issues, I would be absolutely with the protesters. And I have this amazing platform and I want to use it for a certain outcome. Now, having said that, Brian also goes on to say that we have to have a cultural shift. We have to have a change in the will of the people or political will. And we have to have the narrative that really is true. And we have to tell the truth yeah. about the story that is 400 years old in this country about life being different for people who are in America in white skin and in African and black skin, brown skin. So I want you and me, if we can, to stay in that deep place about the deep work. Now, if you're ready to go there, go there. If you need to say anything about the significance of the protests that are going on, um, I would certainly welcome that as well. And then we can go into the deep work. Well, no reason to hesitate. I will say something about the protests simply that you know, it's notable that they are have many more white people participating than has been the case in the past. Um, and certainly it is notable that in polls, 75 to 80% of Americans today say they support Black Lives Matter. Um, that certainly was not true in 2015 uh, during the Ferguson uprising. So, you know, there we see some shift in attitudes, but as you said, uh, you know, protesting, you know, goes on for a season and then it stops. Um, attitudes can shift, but then people drift back into old ways of thinking. So if we really want to see systemic change, we have to talk at a deeper level. Very good. Um, I, I, I just do want to note, since this is a St. Luke's Church uh, forum, how many people are writing and telling me that they uh, have gone to at least one, and in some cases, many protests. And teenagers are going with their parents, and children are going with their parents. So I do want to note that and also thank those people and applaud them for doing that. So let's talk about systemic change. What in your mind, what are the two or three or four things that come into your mind that need to take place as hallmarks of doing that deep work? I've been thinking a lot about uh, that question. And one of the things that I thought about was the need to ensure that we have a living wage um, in our community. And I've been thinking a lot, and people might say, well, what does that have to do with racism? Well, actually, it has a lot to do with it. Um, and, and I'll tell you why I've been thinking about that. I read a book earlier this year called The Half Has Never Been Told. I'll repeat the title, The Half Has Never Been Told. The author's name is Edward Baptist. And he, and the subtitle of that book, The Half Has Never Been Told, the subtitle is Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. And what the author does in great detail is make clear the profitability of slavery for the slave owners, right? You know, that they were making lots of money of growing cotton here in the South. And, but as the soil was depleted, as the cotton was harder to um, grow, it became necessary 
to really get more productivity from the workers, from the slaves, the enslaved people, um, in order to continue to generate significant, you know, the level of profits that the uh, plantation owners were seeking. And they really, you know, that's where the, you know, the whipping and all of the brutality came in to try to ensure high levels of productivity from people who were being held against their will. And when slavery came to an end, there was still the desire for that productivity and that profit. And we know that the sharecropping system that uh, replaced slavery was not that much better in terms of you know what people were paid, the opportunity to get out of a very subsistence level of poverty. We know from books like Slavery, uh, what is the name of that book? Slavery as an, um, with another name. I think you know the book I'm talking about. I'm butchering the title. Slavery by Another Name, that's the title of it. Slavery by Another Name, which talks about the um, prison leasing uh, convict system, you know, where um, during the era following the end of slavery, following Reconstruction, um, as the Black Codes and Jim Crow was put into place, people were, you know, just snatched off the street, you know, adult men and uh, for very small infractions, maybe no infractions, and forced into prison where they were then forced to labor in the fields again with very little pay, probably no pay as prisoners. And, you know, and if they died in under difficult work conditions, no matter more could be gotten. And, you know, the prison system that we see, the, the mass incarceration and mass incarceration system that we talk about today is in some ways an extension of that earlier time, as documented in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. But but what is underlying all of these examples is, you know, the devaluing of the black labor force. Um, you know, you don't have to take care of them, they're just the slaves, right? You don't have to pay them much, they're just the sharecrafters. You know, you don't have to give them freedom, they're just the prisoner or convict. Um, and that dehumanization of that labor force translates today into a lot of so-called essential workers who are not making a living wage, don't have access to healthcare, um, and whose lives are essentially devalued still. So it seems to me that if we want to say Black Lives Matter, and we want to interrupt the systems that have devalued Black life, we have to make it possible for Black people to live um, and live with dignity and that's actually what Dr. King was talking about at the time of his assassination, right? We know that he was in Memphis working with the sanitation workers saying, you know, these folks are doing essential work and they deserve to be paid a living wage. Fast forward 50 years, I think the Memphis sanitation workers are still struggling to be paid a living wage. And certainly when you hear the stories of folks who are working full-time and earning $12,000, $13,000 a year, you have to wonder who is paying those wages and how do they justify paying those wages? Um, you know, I used to say at Spelman, if we have a job that needs doing, then the person doing it deserves a living wage to do it. Um, you know, if we're not willing to pay a living wage, then maybe we don't really need the job done. Um, and so the um, so I think that 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 will I mean of course there are white people working for poverty wages we call them poverty wages today there might have been a time when we would have used the language slave wages um, and I think that if we really wanted to acknowledge that every human life was of value we would make it possible for people to live their lives with dignity we certainly understand that um, I understand, and, 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 and in the city of Atlanta, we see people like me, right, African-Americans who have done well, um, you know, intellectually, economically, I was well-educated. Of course, I didn't grow up here. I, like a lot of people, I'm a transplant. Um, but the, uh, the fact of the matter is, 
if you were born in Atlanta, if you were born poor, if you were born poor and black in Atlanta, the odds of you dying poor are very high. You know, the mobility rates, we know that Atlanta has one of the lowest um, economic mobility rates in the country. And so when we see black people who have done well here, of course, some of them are from Atlanta and we know that the civil rights era opened up opportunities um, and many people were able to take advantage of those opportunities, but it's still not the vast majority. When I went to college in 1971, only 4% of, and I was fortunate to grow up in a family of educators. You know, my parents were college educated. They both had graduate degrees. I was, um, I went to public school, but I went, I grew up in Massachusetts where the public schools are quite good. And I had um, an excellent education and many opportunities. That said, when I went to college in 1971, only 4% of black Americans were college educated. Today, that percentage is more like 25%. 20, somewhere between 20 and 25%, and that is improvement, certainly. But that means still 75 or 80% have not had the opportunity for that kind of education. And many are trapped in low-wage jobs with no opportunity to move beyond them. I was listening to um, an NPR story about the current efforts during the COVID-19, you know, to provide people with financial support. And we know that there are um, payments being made, you know, unemployment payments, sort of bonus payments that are being made because of the COVID-19 circumstance. And some people have been talking about the fact that people don't wanna go back to work because they are making more money with their unemployment than they were actually being paid. And while I think many people would like to go back to work and have challenges because of kids at home and other things, it does leave me to ask the question, why would we think people need a certain, you know, $600 a week or whatever the amount is, if we think that's what people need to live, why would we pay them less than that? And I think fundamentally it has to do with the devaluing of the people who do the work. Thank you very much. That was a, such a wonderfully concise, clear narrative about the centrality of economic injustice and how it kills people. I, I mean, when you said, uh, if in Atlanta you are born poor, you are likely to die poor. And we do know that the outcomes of life expectancy for people who live in poverty are foreshortened. Um, Thank you very much. I, I also appreciate- can, can I say something about that though? Please. Um, so, so this is to say, so let's imagine we all agreed, yes, people should be paid more. Whatever they're being paid to do, it means somebody else is gonna pay more, right? Right. You know, if, 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 I, if I have to pay you more to work in a fast food place, the fast food's gonna cost you more. Right. You know, if I have to pay you more to, you know, work in the grocery store, the groceries are gonna cost you more. Um, and the idea that um, that would be, many people would say, well, I, I don't want to pay more. And I think if that's what you say, then you have to recognize that you are benefiting from somebody else's disadvantage. Um, two things there. Another one of my mentors said something I'd never heard put this way before. She's African-American, teaches multiculturalism. That's, that's why she's, uh, I, I'm being tutored by her. And she said, African-American people have for so long been the oil for America. Uh, other countries have these great oil supplies, and that's the result, that, that is the reason for their wealth. African-American free labor was the oil of the American economy. And 
as you have put it, when we don't pay living wages, it still is that. That's a stark thing to say. I'm so glad you said it. And the other response I have is I want, frankly, to challenge religious organizations and point out our responsibility to call for living wages. And we can't do that with integrity unless we are paying living wages. Mm -hmm. And we had a very emotional but wonderful outcome when we realized that we had um, an employee who was experiencing homelessness with children because what we were paying, she, she could not afford a house, uh, to, to rent a house. And we had to, as a Christian body, come to terms with that and decide that we were gonna pay at least $15 an hour for everybody who works at St. Luke's. And I really think that this is a moment, I'm so glad you started with the, the economy issue. I think that, and, and I, I, I do appreciate your invoking Dr. King's doing that. I mean, the first protest I was in was a continuation of the Poor People's March in Macon, Georgia, after he, right after he was assassinated, Dr. Abernathy was leading it at that point. And um, his call for economic reform and to identify it as one of the three trinity of evil um, was just really very important. And many people think that because he did that, and then also militarism was another one of those three evils. That that's what led to his assassination. But so thanks for starting with the economic issue, and I just want to call all religious organizations to be partners in bringing a different political will to our all of our legislative bodies and our president. And in order for us to have the ability to do that with, integ with integrity, we've got to change you know, how we pay people as well. So thank you very much. That was an important moment in this conversation. Are there other things that come to your mind in addition to the living wage? Well, they flow in some ways from that, but if you think about what is it that a person needs to live a healthy life, you know, they need access to health care, you know, universal health care, uh, access to that. And we, it's a, it's a, it's criminal in my view that so many people who are being exposed to uh, higher risks of COVID-19 because of their work may in fact not even be able to access healthcare if they need it because they don't have benefits or healthcare insurance, you know, and to try to um, undo the safety, the, the limited safety net that we have in terms of um, the Affordable Care Act, for example, I think is just, personally, I think is criminal. But the, but, you know, think about what do people need? They need access to safe housing, um, in order for their children to advance, they need access to high quality education. In order to uh, maintain their health, they need access to healthcare, as I said. And of course, you know, the safety and security of um, their communities. So the, so one without any of the others is not sufficient, mm -hmm. but certainly if you start with being able to afford housing because you're earning a living wage, I mean, there's certainly lots of places a person can't live even on a living wage, right? right. But, um, but to be able to live in clean, safe housing um, with your children seems fundamentally something that we would all agree is part of living a life with dignity. 
you know, being forced on the streets, living in a box um, on a sidewalk is not a life with the kind of dignity any of the rest of us would want. And certainly as we come to the end of those supplemental payments that people have been receiving relative to COVID-19 and the moratorium on um, evictions is lifted, we can anticipate that we will see rising a rising tide of homelessness. <sighs> I'm, I'm taking that in. I, I, um, I think that, well, let's talk about, let's talk about racism and the, and the white mentality just for a moment um, and then come back to. But let me be clear, we've been talking about racism. <laughs> so, thank you, thank you. Thank let's you. be clear on that point. Thank you very much. This is why I like to have a conversation with you <laughs> because you said, let's be clear. Where my mind was is that a part of structural racism and white supremacy is that white people don't have to think about this. Mm -hmm. And this gets to another, and we can just bracket this and follow it by title and come back to it in, in a few minutes. But this does get to one of your um, brands. One of the things that people think about when they think about you is that you believe in the importance of candid conversations about race. Yeah. And that part, and, and, and the point I'm trying to make is that part of structural racism and white supremacy is, all of that is a piece, is that white people can not think about this. Maybe for all their lives. And that is not the life of an African American person or person in black or brown skin in America. So there, we do need to talk, and I'm quite willing to bracket it and go back to, to any list that you have yeah. about structural change, systemic change. But we do need to talk about having conversations in this country and whether or not we have a new opportunity or a deeper opportunity to have those conversations because perhaps some people are more awake or more attentive than we have been. Well, I do think there is an opportunity to have conversation and conversation is important. Um, but the reason I say conversation is important is because conversation leads to greater awareness. Um, it leads to, if the conversations are happening across lines of racial difference, it can lead to um, deeper understanding and perhaps trust uh, developing, but more importantly, it leads to empathy, right? And empathy is important because empathy motivates action. So at the so the end game here is action. Um, so it's not just conversation for conversation's sake. It's conversation for understanding. Understanding leads to empathy. Empathy leads to action. And if you think about what motivates people to speak up about something or to take action. Sometimes people do it just because, you know, they're outraged as they are, you know, the people protesting didn't personally know George Floyd, most of them, um, but they're outraged by what they saw and they're speaking up against it. But, and maybe they're doing that because they care about someone they know who could have been George Floyd. You know, maybe they have a friend or a loved one who could have been under that knee um, and they don't ever want to see that happen, and that's why they're protesting. Sometimes people are protesting because they think it's the right thing to do because of their own internal moral compass or taking action because of that internal moral compass. But often what motivates people to take action is a personal relationship. I'm doing this, I'm going to that meeting because I'm concerned about my children's education. You know, I am speaking up about this because I'm concerned about the safety of people I care about. I'm going to um, 
bring forth this legislation because I am wanting to advocate for the communities I care deeply about. So um, that personal connection is often the motivation. And when we don't know people, when we don't have empathy for them, we are not likely to speak up against the things that are happening to them. So that is the, um, for me, the power of dialogue is that it leads to effective action. Which is not to say it can't feel good on its own, but at the end of the day, people who are targeted by racism and other isms are not interested in just nice conversations. You know, they're interested in seeing that ism go away um, and the quality of their lives improve. So that is, um, you know, why I think conversation is so important. So, um I want, I want to go deeper there now, um, but I don't want to short circuit the earlier chapter of our conversation, which was, what are the hallmarks of systemic change? And we started with the living wage and we went to a list of necessities that a person living a life with dignity must have. So can I, can I interrupt for just a second? Please always. So, so I think part of our challenge in these conversations is that, and I think it's a real problem in the United States, is that so many people are so ill-informed about the history of our country. And by that, I'm not just talking about what happened 400 years ago. But for example, when we talk about living wage or access to healthcare or you know, other safety net um, programs, Social Security is a safety net program, right? But if we go back to the history of those programs, black people were intentionally excluded from them. Um, many people may not know that, but for example, back in the 30s when the legislation uh, for unemployment insurance and Social Security were being put in place, you know, following the disaster of the Great Depression, Southern legislators were very specific in saying that they would not support these programs if black people were going to benefit from them. They wanted it to be a whites only program. And you might say, well, why would, you know, why be so mean? Like, why would that um, be important? And the rationale appeared to be that if um, black people had access to dollars that they weren't getting from their white employers, they might not put up with the mistreatment that they were receiving at the hands of those employers, you know, that they would have more choices. And the, um, it's really interesting when you know this history to see all the ways that it was important to the local economy to keep black people doing those jobs. So that, um, I'm gonna come back to the social security point in just a minute, but so that even when black folks decided it is too horrible, the racial terrorism of the lynchings and all of the Jim Crow um, stuff that was happening is too hard, we need to get out of here. And people were leaving in droves to go north to work in the factories and the opportunities that were opening up. And the loss of that labor force was so threatening to uh, you know, white business owners and uh, you know the agricultural uh, owners and all of that, that people were having to sneak out in the middle of the night because their families were threatened if they were to leave their jobs. Their um, own lives could be threatened. You know, there are stories of people literally escaping in the middle of the night or you know, sneaking down to the train station, quickly getting on board without anybody seeing, not telling anyone, keeping it a secret that you are planning to leave because there was so much um, harassment and violence directed toward people because it was so threatening to the local economy. Coming back to your point about black people being the oil, right? You know, can't let the oil leave. And so now I'm coming back to the social security point when, um, the safety net programs were being put in place, the idea that the safety net might apply to um, black people in the same way that it would apply to white people 
was threatening to the structure where white people earned more, black people were paid less, all of that. And so what was the solution? The Northern legislators said, you can't have just whites only legislation. They agreed that what you could have is exclusion of certain employment categories. So when the, those safety net programs were passed, uh, it covered all kinds of jobs, but it explicitly excluded domestic workers, housekeepers, you know, maids, people like that, and agricultural workers. Well, who were the agricultural workers then? Who were the housekeepers and the domestic labor then? Those were black people. So it didn't say black people are excluded. It just said the jobs that black people were occupied were not covered by social security or by unemployment insurance. That didn't change, that exclusion didn't change until the 1960s. If we think about not only were they denied those safety nets, but think about what that means. If you have an elderly parent who's worked her whole life or his whole life and now is too old to work but has no social security, that means you, the younger generation, have to support that caring, you know, care for that elder, which of course you want to do, but that means you don't have resources to send your kid to college. You don't have resources to buy a house. You don't have, you know, so many of the uh, disparities in terms of educational attainment, in terms of home ownership, in terms of um, a lot of the other building blocks for intergenerational wealth make are much more difficult for you to um, obtain. And so when people don't know that history, and a lot of people don't, when people don't know that history, it's easy to say, well, you know, they just weren't working hard enough, um, or, you know, to blame the victim uh, and not see the systemic nature of the unfairness. So I think that when we talk about um, economic justice, we have to understand it as a manifestation of racial justice, that it was actually white supremacy and systemic racism that put those economic barriers in place. Um, so I just want to highlight or underscore, and check me please, uh, if, if I've heard you, if I've understood you correctly, you have enriched, in, um, I'm sorry, you've given more of the texture of the economic racism and reinforcement of the caste hierarchy in America as it applies to economics. You also have sounded the call for people to get their history right. Yes. There's a whole bunch of re-narration that needs to take place in the story we tell ourselves about America. Yes. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't even say re-narration, as in, and I say re-narration because many people didn't know it in the first place. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, they need to, right. to uh, revisit what they learned, which may not have been accurate. But there, for many people, there's a big gap between you know slavery and the end of slavery, and you know Rosa Parks on the bus, right. you know, and and uh, the, you know right. a lot of years in between, yeah. uh, about which people don't know very much, and even what they do know about what they think they know about slavery, what they think they know about the civil rights era, may not be very accurate either. Right. And you know, and we are talking. You and I are you know similar generation, both baby boomers, um, but. There's some things that I know because I was born in 1954 and I was alive when they happened. But if you were born in 1994, it may seem that some of the things that I know because I witnessed it um, may be completely unknown to somebody who's you know of a different generation. Indeed. So the cultural amnesia that we suffer from in the United States is. Um, is long, you know, goes back a long way. And, uh, and I, but the good news is 
that there are plenty of books to read and uh, ways to educate yourself, you know, documentaries to watch. And one of the encouraging things about this moment is that, you know, those books are on the bestseller list and the um, documentaries are easily available on Netflix and there's no reason not to educate yourself. Indeed. I, I, I want to draw a parallel between this business of getting the story right, getting, getting the, the story of our country correct with a business of getting a story right about Jesus and Christianity. Yes. Pardon, me, pardon me for speaking as a Christian clergy person now, but for a long time in this country, the predominant expression of Christianity was not the religion of Jesus. Yes. It was actually a slaveholder Christianity. So that we were totally distorting what Jesus embodied in order to theologically come up under and justify a slaveholding economy. And that is a narration, re-narration, a story that has to be corrected from the pulpits of this country also. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. I mean, I one of the most chilling moments I've ever had in my life was in Cape Town being taken to, and I've forgotten the name of the university, and the great meeting hall there where the white theologians gathered to write the theological underpinnings and justification for the apartheid government. And there are churches throughout this country that are analogs of that. Um, I'm, I happen to be in Birmingham today, um, and there's a, a Methodist church here where that document was written. And it's all, it, it can be traced back to this notion of slaveholder Christianity. And I never want not to mention that the name of one of the ships that brought cargo, human cargo, the name of it was Jesus. So, uh, I get quite emotional about this. So let me breathe deeply and let's go if you're ready, or if it's appropriate, back to the issue of dialogues. Yes. And here is a really, well, I can't wait for you to unpack this, but the whole notion, and this goes back to the white supremacy, is that um, white people uh, need to have black people to come in and have dialogues with them for, for their benefit. So you're smiling with recognition. Can you unpack yeah. that? And then also unpack the legitimate need for dialogue. There is a legitimate need for dialogue, but some of that dialogue needs to be between white people, yeah. white people with other white people. And um, you know, one of the books that's on the New York Times bestseller list right now is a book called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And when people ask me, you know, when a white person asks me, what should I read? I often say, you know, I would really encourage you to read that book, White Fragility. Because one of the things that Robin talks about in her book is um, the fact that there is so much silence among white people. You know, uh, many people grew up learning not to talk about racism. They were encouraged not to talk about it. And they feel very uncomfortable having those conversations, certainly uncomfortable having those conversations with people of color, but um, sometimes even with anyone, you know, for fear that they'll say the wrong thing or maybe they will offend someone or, you know, there's lots of reasons why people don't want to have the conversation. But one of the things that Robin talks about in her book is that that fragility, and by that she means a kind of defensiveness that um, are, is demonstrated, or not even defensiveness, but a kind of emotional response that many white people will 
exhibit when talking about race. Things like having a hard conversation and then starting to cry in the middle of it. Um, and, uh, and then the focus is not on the conversation, but on comforting the white person who's crying, um, as an example. But she says, really, the problem is a lack of stamina. And I really like that term because it reminds me of, you know, what is stamina? Stamina is the ability to persist. And if you, you know, if I wanted to run a marathon today, I would tell you that I don't have enough stamina. I would have to train and build up my uh, capacity to run a long distance. In the same way, if a white person hasn't had much experience having conversations about race, they might need some practice before they are able to really run the marathon. And so um, to, if I could stick with this analogy for a minute, if I want to train for a marathon, I might want to have other people train with me. But those folks who already know how to run marathons are not gonna wanna train with me because I'm running too slow, right? Um, so I'm gonna have to practice with some slower runners until I get better at it. Um, and then I might be able to run with the experienced marathoners. Uh, and in the same way, you know, black people have a lot of experience talking about race and they understand, we understand the um, issues because we live them. And, you know, I do this uh, professionally. You know, I've been teaching about racism since 1980, 40 years. And so, um, I don't mind when someone asks me a question that I've answered a thousand times before because that's what I do. But not everybody has signed up for that. And so it is um, important for some of those conversations to happen so people can build up their stamina and be better able to participate um, effectively in cross-racial dialogue with folks who are willing to have those conversations. And some people might say, but how could I possibly have a useful conversation with other white people? You know, they're as clueless as I am. But the truth of the matter is, they're not. I mean, there's a variety. You, you know, use your own experience. You talk about the things you've read and the places you've been. Um, you can be uh, a scaffold. You know, psychologists refer to scaffolding. You know, when a younger child learns something from an older child, we call that scaffolding. You know, when a more experienced adult who has, white adult who has learned about racism through their reading, life experience, studying conversations, and reaches back to help other white people have a deeper understanding, deeper knowledge, that too is a kind of scaffolding. And I think those are the conversations that need to happen um, as much. In fact, I would say more so than the cross-racial ones. Because the truth of the matter is, people of color are tired. I, I, I again want to simply underscore that last point is that uh, two or three very strong, from the outside, stamina-filled black leaders at St. Luke's have sent me articles about, and there was one particularly article that was really helpful that said the competent, um, confident uh, black colleague on the Zoom screen with you underneath is very burdened right now. And just be aware of that. Um, and then the other point I wanted to make is the, one of the saddest conversations, one of the saddest calls I've received lately was from a white person at St. Luke's talking about how difficult it is for her to talk with white friends, bumping into invariably talking about removing Confederate monuments or the Confederate flag, or and then just going ballistic, being triggered. And how am I going, and, and in effect, she was saying, I need more stamina, how to do it. So we are in this series going to have some conversations about talking across the aisle. Um, because when you're talking about white people talking with white people, you're talking about the avoidance of contact and, uh, and wanting not to bring up 
politics at the Thanksgiving table, you know, and that kind of thing. Well, our time, unfortunately, is over, and you um, have been so generous. God, what a great teacher you are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have such a vocation to be um, pedagogically brilliant, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Um, I hope that we can continue our conversations over the years, but thank you for this morning. Do you have anything else to say, Dr. Tatum? I, I just want to thank you, Reverend Ed, for your um, openness and your willingness to have this hard conversation because, as you pointed out, a lot of houses of worship are not having it. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks for always interrupting me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I consider it to be a, a compliment. So blessings. Thank you very much. And thank you all for watching. We appreciate your being with us on Sunday Forum. Stay tuned. We have many, we are committed to this kind of conversation. Thanks again, Dr. Tatum. Thank you all. Bye-bye.